You know, I was just thinking before, while uh, Russ was actually speaking during the, the worship time, it speaks actually in the, in the first chapter of Ephesians about how God plan, has given us every spiritual blessing that we need to live a godly life. And his plan in doing that actually happened before the foundation of the world. Okay? And then, even more than that, he, we, he, Jesus comes along, he pays the price that we cannot pay in order that we might have what we could never achieve ourselves. He exchanges his riches for our poverty and then we're adopted into God's family. And what's more, on top of that, then it says, When you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. And he did this so that we would praise and glorify him. You know, apart from all of those other things, on top of all of that, God sends an amazing sign, which is a guarantee. He, he puts more than that. He attaches this sign as a guarantee that we will receive the inheritance that is spoken about in the Bible. And sometimes, you know, we, we can... We can forget all of those things. This has got nothing to do with what I'm preaching, by the way. Sometimes we can forget all of those things. And, you know, we can get very sidetracked onto the, the common things of life, the things that we do every day. But it's good to be reminded that before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. And he's still got a plan. And he's still outworking that plan. And what's more is along the way, he gives us signposts and he gives us guarantees. Signs and guarantees along the way. That kind of leads into what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> my, my previous message back in April was entitled, What We Believe and Why We Believe It. I spoke on bringing spiritual understanding to spiritual concepts as we begin to look at biblical prophecy and end times events or eschatology. You may remember that I showed a short video clip of a 3D suspended um, puzzle to demonstrate how complex the subject is. Can't get that on the podcast, unfortunately. You, if you missed it, you missed it. But never mind. Uh, the, the suspended pieces need to be hung on the correct framework, and the angle that we choose to view the image actually makes a big difference as to how clear the overall picture is, as well as the finer detail as well. I said that to present uh, a sorry. I said that to present an accurate model that is biblically robust, we have to work at digging out the scriptural pieces of the puzzle and to build an overview of the main themes and the big picture of end time scripture. I mentioned how it is that we need to keep adding to our view of understanding scripture by keeping a working file marked TBC or to be completed, okay, while we put the big picture together. And that's really very important. We need in lots of things where it comes to the, the, uh, the things of the Bible, the things of the, the Spirit of God, we need to just have that working file and say, okay, we haven't got it all squared away yet, but we're working at it. We're building a bigger picture. We're getting a bigger vision of who God is. This morning, as I continue on the series of how we can know from the Bible 
that we are in the end times, I want to deliver this second message, which I've entitled, The Miracle of Israel in the End Times. Okay. If I said this morning that we're living in the end times, give me a show of hands. Who would agree with me? Yeah, we've got a fairly good, good show of hands there. Okay, what I want you to do for a moment is just to think about from the Bible, from the scriptures, how is it that you know what you believe and why do you believe that we're in the end times? Did you know that the term the end times is actually not found in the Bible? It's one of those, those strange ones. If you do a search in all of the major translations, you'll actually not find the uh, end times mentioned. Okay. Now, just to qualify, I am not talking about the last days. Okay. That is a phrase which does appear in the Bible, but the phrase the end times does not. Just like the words Trinity or rapture, we, we use the term end times while not appearing in the scripture. It does have a meaning that we as believers understand, something that we've attached to it. And by the end times, I mean the end of the last days or the last of the last days. Remember in my message, I said that it was important to know why you believe what you believe and to be able to explain it. From the scriptures. And the reason being is because, just segueing again a little bit, is that Peter tells us that we need to be ready to give an account for our faith, okay, at any time. And in these days in particular, we are going to get called to give an account for our faith. Good thing is, we don't have to worry about that because I know the Lord will give us the words, but it's a good thing for us to begin to give some thought to. Why do I believe what it is that I believe? I read the scripture and I see something and I, 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 I hang on to it and I believe it. But why is it that I believe it? Because if you've only got, and again, I'm sideways here a little bit, but if you've only got a what, it will not be enough to anchor you. The what is good and we need a what. We need the what. We need the what of the word, what it's all about, what the scripture says what we need to understand in terms of what God is trying to communicate to us. But we need to understand a why. Why is God wanting to communicate that to us? Why is he wanting us to be grounded and anchored in our faith? They are very important questions that we need to address, we need to come to terms with. When we look at the whole panorama of the Bible and we begin to piece together the puzzle, I also said that, the overarching themes of the Bible help us to gain the needed big picture overview of Scripture. And as an example, last time I highlighted God's desire to have a people with whom he dwells. Another one of those undeniable overarching biblical themes is that, the, is that of God's call, promises and purposes for the people, the nation of Israel. Okay, God's call, promises, purposes for the people, the nation of Israel. God chose and called Abram, making a covenant with him, in which God swore by himself, since there is no one higher, that he would fulfill all the promises that he made to him. And the initial covenant is then extended and repeated, with more promises added to Abraham's descendants as the, as the years go, go through and the generations go by, even whereby God gives signs that, cert, that point to certain prophetic events. 
Okay, so just to explain here, small detour, events versus signs or trends in the Bible. What am I talking about? We're not going to look it up, but I'm just going to refer to it. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 3, we see in the first verse, okay, the disciples are actually saying, hey, look, isn't this temple wonderful? Isn't it a beautiful building? Second verse, Jesus says, yeah, but not one stone is going to be left upon another. Then we get to the third verse and we find out they come to him later privately when, when all the crowds are gone and they begin to ask of him, well, okay, when will this happen, referring to the temple being destroyed and what will be the signs that lead up to the end of the age? Now, it's not until verse 30, so we've got now from verse 3 all the way down to verse 30 where Jesus begins to speak of the, his second coming. But prior to that, he lists a number of signs that point to the second coming event. You know, we're familiar with some of them. Floods, famines, earthquakes, etc., etc. So, biblical signs or trends point towards, confirm, and testify to prophesied events. Okay, let me say that again. So, biblical signs or trends point towards, confirm, and testify to prophesied events in Scripture. I've said previously that a truly amazing and miraculous thing is happening at this time in world history. Because once again, we see on the world stage, both the church and the nation of Israel existing together after almost 1900 years. Israel has defied world history in being removed from its homeland, not once, but twice, and then being returned twice. It's never happened before. It's absolutely unprecedented in world history. I challenge you to go find it where it's happened once, let alone twice. Now, there's no, this is not a coincidence because God made a covenant with Abraham to bless him, to prosper him, and to make him a great nation. God said that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. His descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth and as many as the stars in the sky. God had promised him a land for his descendants as an everlasting possession. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 12, 13, and 17. Okay, so my first point is the scriptures prophesied that God would bring Israel back to their ancient homeland. Scriptures prophesied that God would bring Israel back to their ancient homeland. God's covenant promise to Abraham and his descendants was that the ownership of the land was forever... However, the occupancy in the land was linked to their obedience to God's law and the stipulations of the covenant. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 62 to 64. I'm going to mention a lot of scripture. I'm not going to look at all of it, but I'm going to mention a lot. So if you're taking notes, I will repeat the, the references. Okay, Deuteronomy 28, 62 to 64. Obedience meant, that Israel, meant blessing to Israel, but disobedience brought the curses of the covenant. And one of them, was removal from the land. Now, the Assyrians took the northern kingdom, just a, a short bit of history, took the, the northern kingdoms, the, the ten tribes, into captivity in 721 BC. Okay? While Judah and Benjamin were finally taken into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in the first deportation in 605 BC, and it was finished by the third deportation of 586 BC. Okay, they returned again to their homeland for the first time 70 years later, just as Jeremiah had prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11. 
and also in chapter 29 and verse 10. So it's Jeremiah 25, 11 and 29, 10. And that was the first removal from the land. Then later, under the Roman Empire, there were two major revolts. One that happened in 70 AD the one in one, and another one in 135 AD where the Romans brutally crushed the rebellions, burnt the temple, raised Jerusalem to the ground, scattered the people of Israel to the four corners of the empire and then the Romans renamed the land to Syria, Palestina just so that they could erase the memory of Israel from the land completely. Okay. So that's what we had, and that's how it stayed for almost 1,900 years as the Jews wandered from country to country, persecuted wherever they went. Now, during this tumultuous time, God had not abandoned his people, though they may have felt that way. He still had a plan for them. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35 to 37, Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37, it is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day and the moon and stars to light the night. And he who stirs the sea into roaring waves, his name is the Lord of heaven's armies, and this is what he says. I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. Pretty emphatic. This is what the Lord says, just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider casting them away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. So God made a promise that he would not reject Israel, that he would not cast them off, he wouldn't throw them away, and he wasn't going to replace them. He had no intention of going back on his promises that he had made to to, uh, Abraham and his descendants. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 11, God has promised, Isaiah 11, 11, God promised to stretch out his hand and to regather Israel from the four corners of the earth a second time. The first time being from the Babylonian exile. But this is a second time, a second reference. In 1867, the writer Mark Twain actually visited the land of ancient Israel to find, it was called Palestine at the time, uh, his findings were published in a book entitled Innocence Abroad. He writes that the land was, de- it was a desolate country, it's devoid of vegetation and human population. More than half the land area is, des- is desert. The soil is rich, but is wholly given over to weeds, and it's so bad that even the cactus is reluctant to grow there. Not much of a report, is it? However, it was this book that began to stir within the hearts of the scattered people of Israel to once again live in their ancient homeland. In 1892, the first returns of mainly tenant farmers began as they started to reclaim the the land, reclaim the soil. They planted hundreds of thousands of trees. Other major events that happened, such as the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, hope you like history because you're getting a little bit. (laughs) The breakup of the Ottoman Empire, the Balfour Declaration in 1917 and the San Remo Resolution of 1920, along with Hitler and the Nazi Party's final solution, all of those things helped to put sinews and flesh on the dry bones of the people who were feeling absolutely cut off and were were feeling hopelessly lost. Ezekiel chapter 37 and verses 11 to 14. Ezekiel 37, 11 to 14 states that God would cause, flesh, would cause flesh to be put on Israel's dry bones and that he would revive them as a nation and return them to their homeland. 
Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, Hosea 3, 4 to 5 says that Israel would return in the last days. Okay, That return was going to be in the last days, very emphatically described there. And Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, Amos 9, 14 and 15 tells us that God has brought, once God has brought them home, they will never be uprooted again. Okay, the second, the second point that I want to make here is that the scriptures prophesy that God will bring a spiritual restoration to Israel. The scriptures prophesy that God will bring a spiritual restoration to Israel. So Israel has now, has now returned to their ancient homeland and God has done as he said he would do, even as he continues to be faithful to the covenant promises that he's made to Abraham. And his descendants. Although what we see at this time is a nation that is not walking with God. Okay, it's a nation that is very secular in nature right at this point. We're yet to see a spiritual revival that brings the nation to the point of actually recognizing Jesus as their Messiah. God wanted Israel to be a model nation. A group of people through whom the, people, the other peoples of the earth could learn vitally important lessons. Okay? So God wanted them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We read about that in Exodus 19.6. 19.6. Exodus 19.6. So that the nations would see that when the Israelites obeyed God, they would be blessed. And that's actually spoken about in Exodus 19.5. And when they disobeyed, they would be punished. And you can read all about the blessings and the curses of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So God intended for Israel to serve, to be a servant to God, and to be a blessing to the nations of the world. Israel overlooked God's warning that they needed to obey him and to keep the covenant that they had made with him. Yet God was faithful to continue to fulfill his words of promise to Israel that would ultimately flow out to the rest of the world. Speaking of the Messiah to come, in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, it says, Isaiah 49, 6, it is, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my servant to the end, my salvation to the ends of the earth. So Jesus, the Messiah, came to the world through the Jewish people, but Israel missed the time of their visitation. And it tells us that in Luke 19.44. But all's not lost for them because God will establish Israel just as he said he would. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 39, Matthew 23, 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Israel will again see Jesus when they acknowledge him as their Messiah. Although not all the Jews have returned to Israel at this point, Daniel chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2 actually describes at the end times a period for Israel of unprecedented trouble such as has never been. Now, I want you to remember that. It's a time of trouble such as has never been. And you think of some of the stuff that they've been through. Okay? And it does likewise in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7. 
Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, and reading from the NIV here, it says, How awful that day will be. No other will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. There's a lot of detail in the Old Testament concerning how Israel will be saved. But for the sake of time, let's look at how Paul sums it up for us. If we go to Romans chapter 11 and verses 25 to 26. Romans 11, 25 to 26. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of the Gentiles comes to Christ. So a day is coming when God's attention is going to move from the Gentiles and focus back upon Israel and God's purposes for them. That's what Paul is saying to us right here. As he removes the hardness from their hearts, and that ties right in with Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. Amen. So Paul goes on in verse 26 of Romans chapter 11, and he says, So Israel will be saved, as the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. Who Israel is being rescued from and the results and how that results in them being saved is perhaps a subject for another message because it's rather long. But I just want to give you a short glimpse of it right at the moment. Everybody likes a teaser, don't they? Everybody likes a little bit, know a little bit. Okay, before I do that, let me have a little sip here. Dry mouth syndrome, horrible. Okay. <clears throat> Let's see, what can we say about this? Before Jesus the Messiah can return again, there is need of a third temple to be built in Jerusalem. Why? Because the prophet Daniel in Daniel 11, 31, that's Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, and Jesus quoting him in Matthew 24, 15, Matthew 24, 15, spoke of how the Antichrist would use the temple. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, said that before the day of the Lord, the abomination of desolation who is the Antichrist would sit in the temple and proclaim himself to be God. And that is going to have disastrous and horrific consequences for Israel. So God, having returned Israel to their homeland, and Israel, having regained control over their capital, Jerusalem, is a major sign, if not the major biblical sign and event indicating that we're in the last days. Let me say it again, because it's a big statement, and I'm prepared to back it up. <laughs> so God, having returned Israel to their homeland, and Israel having regained control over their capital, Jerusalem, is a major sign, if not the major sign, the biblical sign that we are actually in the end times. As you read through the Old Testament, you begin to realize that God has plans and purposes for restoring Israel, not only physically, but also spiritually. And then you begin to see scripture after scripture of what God is doing right now before our very eyes. There is a saying that Israel is God's timepiece. The hour hand represents the restoration of the nation to the land. 
okay, back to their homeland. And that happened in the, on the 14th of May, 1948. The minute hand represents the restoration of Jerusalem as their capital back under Israeli control. And that happened on the 7th of June, 1967. And the second hand represents the Temple Mount and the building of the third temple. And that could be any time soon. Okay, plans and preparations for the building of the third temple are well advanced. And the building plans are all drawn up. The tools and the implements have already been uh, made for, ready for service. There are over 500 young men who are descendants from the tribe of Levi. And they've been trained in priestly service. Currently, there are five red heifers in Israel that arrived from Texas last year, and they are nearly two years old. Now, red heifers haven't been seen in Israel for nearly 2,000 years. That's pretty significant too. They're rare, but they're very needed. It's been calculated that there have only been nine that have been sacrificed from the institution of the tabernacle, which was in about 1450 BC, right through until the sacking of the second temple. Okay, in 70 AD. So in 1,500 years, there's only been about nine of them ever sacrificed. Now, these heifers need to be completely unblemished, and not even one hair is allowed to be white or black or any other color but red. That's why they're called red heifers, I guess. And they need to be three to four years old for the purification ceremony to go ahead. Okay, so the ceremony must take place on the Mount of Olives, looking down towards the Temple Mount, over the top of the Kidron Valley, and... It's got to look directly into where the, where the temple would have previously stood with a view to the holy place. Okay, So there's pretty, pretty big criteria, but the land meeting that criteria was already purchased about 12 years ago. And the, the Passover of 2024, which is just next, next year, is when the purification ceremony is scheduled to take place. That's close. That's very close. So recently I learned that, learned that there are actually nine priests who are undefiled according to Mosaic law and they are ready to undergo the purification ceremony in collecting the ashes of the red heifer, which of course has to be done outside of, of the camp, would have been outside of the city on the, on, the, uh, mount in, on, the, on the Mount of Olives there, as I just mentioned. And they're ready for that, that uh, purification ceremony and for the, the, the priestly service because the ashes of the red heifer actually have to be used in the water of purification. We have to have that for priestly service and also for, for temple service. And you can read all about that anyway if you're interested in Numbers chapter 19. Okay, last July I preached a message entitled The Coming Battle from Ezekiel chapter 38. Now if you put that message into context with the very soon flashpoint between Israel and Iran and Iran's uh, proxies, then the repercussions of that clash are that a coalition of nations are going to come against Israel just as the scripture says. There will be a time when, God's, when, when God supernaturally actually intervenes to save and preserve Israel. Israel as a nation has publicly stated that it's preparing for war right now. About two weeks ago, their prime minister actually did a public address and said, we are preparing for war against Iran right now. Okay, so it's not something that's somewhere in the distant future. 
They also said that they will not allow Iran to attain a nuclear bomb in order to carry out their often repeated threats of wiping Israel off the face of the map. And they're not likely to receive much help, if any help at all, from the USA. So as you can see, things are converging rapidly. Things are converging very rapidly. And as, as we move closer toward the end of the age, there are a lot of pieces of the puzzle to give a complete picture, but I think that you get the idea from what I've said. Last month, for the first time ever, millions of Christians were united in prayer for both the salvation and the peace of Israel. That's the first time ever. As a matter of fact, I heard my Bickle, who was the guy who organized this, say that they went back through history to go and see when was it that they could ever find a large group of Christians ever praying for Israel at any time in history. And they kept coming back and they came back to you know, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands. You know, they, they could not find anything more than a few thousand, I think that have ever gathered together. Now, last year, millions, sorry, last month, millions gathered to actually pray for the, the salvation and peace of Israel. And as the church begins to align herself with God's end-time plans and purposes, we are beginning to see Israel come to the forefront of the world's attention once again. Okay, we're living in a day here in the end times where we see Scripture being fulfilled on a weekly, if not almost a daily basis at times. That is just some, okay? That's just some of the miracle of Israel in the end times and why I believe personally that our Lord and Saviour, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, is going to return again, just as the Scriptures say, and soon. How soon? don't know. Soon's one of those indefinite kind of things. But the way that I look at it at the moment, if everyone that I have spoken to for years now keeps saying, and it doesn't matter actually whether they're old or they're young, time is flying. Time's going past quicker. It's almost like God has actually overwhelmed the clock. It's almost like he's speeding up time as we're getting closer towards the end. Now, we don't know how long we've got, and that doesn't matter. Because ultimately it's all in God's hands. The signs of the times are pointing towards Jesus' return. And Jesus said to us in the scriptures, we need to be prepared for it. Now I know, and I just sort of jump off the page here for a minute, I know that there are lots of people, and I've spoken to many, that have turned around and said, look, a lot of the things that it says about you know wars, rumors, wars, there's always been wars, there's always been rumors of wars, Floods, famines, earthquakes, pestilence. Those things have always existed. Yep, they have. But the things that I just spoke to you about this morning, I wanted to actually go before that. Because, you know, when most people, if you speak about the end times, the first place that most Christians will go to is Matthew chapter 24. And a great place to start because Jesus began to expound quite a lot upon it. What does all of that mean? He gave us a lot more detail. But it didn't start there. It actually started to be described to us in the Old Testament. You know, that's what the day of the Lord was all about. And there is so much in here, so rich. There are so many parts to the puzzle. Honestly, I could sit here and bore you all day with historical stuff. I love it, but, you know, uh, some people do, some don't. It doesn't matter 
It's, it's the fact of the matter is the scripture actually tells us a lot of detail. And we're here a long way down the track. You know, you have to remember most of that, the, the scripture that I was reading to you today, except for what Paul wrote, was all written somewhere in the vicinity of two and a half to three and a half thousand years ago. That's a long time by anybody's measure. That's a long time. And that's why deliberately I wanted to start this first message right back at the beginning where God started. Because you read in Genesis chapter 3, you got a promise there right away. God said he was going to send the Messiah effectively. The seed that was going to come between Satan and between human beings. The one who would intercede on our behalf. That's really important. So it's, it's, it's really, really vital that we have something of an understanding of these things, and particularly in these days. You know, we're seeing a lot of stuff on the news and in the media that's constantly coming up. We need to have some answers for that because people are asking questions. You know, since COVID, and Matt was saying that last week, since COVID, something has clicked and changed within people's psyche, and they have become more open to spiritual things. They are beginning to look. People are asking questions and beginning to probe and say, is there something more to life than what I have been living before? Because they had a whole virtually, you know, 18 months, two years of this downtime and there was a lot of time to think, a lot of time to reflect. And sometimes I think people were coming up shortchanged on answers and we need to have some answers for them because this book has all of the answers. Nobody but the Father knows when Jesus will return. However, in his word, he has given us events and signs so that we can determine the seasons and the times. Yes. 